This is Our Anxiety Stories, the Anxiety Canada podcast with John Bacon. This is the place where people from all walks of life share their anxiety stories to remind you that you are not alone. If you have an anxiety story you'd like to share, contact us at anxietycanada.com slash ouranxietystories. This is John Bateman, and you're listening to Our Anxiety Stories, the Anxiety Canada podcast, which can be found at anxietycanada.com and on most of your popular podcast platforms. Mark Anchek is Anxiety Canada's in-house registered clinical counsellor and MindShift Anxiety Group lead facilitator. He also works with a range of anxiety disorders in private practice and at the Vancouver CBT Centre. Hey, Mark. How's it going, John? I'm doing fine. How are you? Not too shabby, thank you. First things first kick things off. What's your anxiety story? Oh, me and anxiety go quite far back. Uh, all starts at the age of 18. Freshly moved to Vancouver, British Columbia after uh, coming from Hamilton uh, for my undergrad, getting overwhelmed with the changes and possibilities that uh, encompass adulthood and just academic transitions. Cue in some sexual orientation components and just figuring out life and you've got some panic uh, that gets thrown at you. And from there, it was just a series of getting involved in a number of different mental health uh, specific programs, trying to help in whatever way I can. And almost 11 years later, I am here as a registered clinical counselor where I get to treat it for a living, Mm -hmm. which has been a really cool experience. So working your undergrad, were you working towards this career that you're in now? No, it's funny you ask that. Uh, I went into psychology because I didn't know what else to do, Uh, where I actually applied to a range of nursing programs and a bunch of arts programs. Didn't know at the time which I was going to get into. I just knew that I really wanted to go to UBC, ended up joining uh, UBC and through just some introductory courses, gaining a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. initially thought I was going to do the clinical psychologist route. Uh, but then just through a series of different experiences, I was led down the clinical counselor route instead. So it's sort of describe your, your, you know, the, the physical or, or, or how anxiety presented itself, you know, physically or emotionally when you first started experiencing it and, and how quickly did you, you know, did you realize that it was, you know, that that you were experiencing something? Yeah, so I mean, I remember it was a very vivid moment in my Psych 100 class. Uh, You know, there's 500 plus students in there. It's a huge lecture tutorial. Uh, I had a very intimidating professor uh, who, uh, Dr. Stanley Korn, love him to bits. Uh, We just, you know, bolo tie wearing Texan man who just uh, was very forward with some of his questions and his opinions. And one day he asked a question, uh, and just blatantly pointed at me to answer it. Wasn't prepared, uh, but I remember the oncoming wave of all the different emotions and the different sensations, you know, racing thoughts. I remember getting like really clammy. I was stammering all over the place. I mm-hmm. uh, excused myself from the class shortly after when he redirected his attention elsewhere. I remember just sitting out in the hallway, uh, just thinking that I was having a heart attack, thinking that this thing was going to, end up ending me. And Mm -hmm. of course, wasn't the case. This repeated itself a number of times in different contexts. And I even found myself worrying about it happening. Uh, And through a family doctor got a referral to 
uh, a psychologist who started explaining a lot of these concepts to me, which turned out to be panic disorder at the time. Yeah, it's interesting that you're in a psych class and you're experiencing that, but you yet you don't really know what you're experiencing at that point. 100%. Yeah, we're all little little newbies in that world for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So what, you know, in your experience, what kind of led you down, like started you towards, I, I, I hesitate to say healing, um, because I kind of think once we have anxiety, you know, we, it kind of sticks with us and there's ways to cope with it. So what, what, what led you down that path for, you know, understanding and coping with your anxiety? I think so many different folks within the helping slash healing profession, as you would put it, uh, have a lot of their own origin stories. And for me, it wasn't actually so much the experience of panic that led me to it, but more so the gratitude I had for being able to support others through it. So mm-hmm. not long after I had my diagnosis, I became what was called a residence advisor. So mm-hmm. I was kind of like the big brother uh, within a residence hall. I had a whole bunch of students uh, that I just had to make sure were safe and did some programming with. And just being able to recognize how common this lived experience was of just people who were getting overwhelmed by exams, by family dynamics, by making new friends, going to events, and just allowing a space where they can kind of talk some of those things through Mm -hmm. and being able to learn some skills just to help folks regulate and to take some of that power and control back. Mm -hmm. That anxiety took away from them was a really gratifying experience, I would say, and really reminded me of just the power of resilience all of us humans have. Did you, did you learn about, because you use CBT as a tool, did you, did you learn about that before you started studying CBT? Bits and bobs, I would say. Like one of the biggest shifts I would say in the last half decade has been in mental health education. And that was something that was really starting to ramp up when I was in my undergrad, but compared to what it is now, I would say there were nowhere near as many resources available. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading little articles about like how CBT is this fix all and how a lot of folks talked about like the power and all the different reaches and applications of it. But it was all within the context of research that I was reading that in, not practical application. So my first really experience with CBT was actually when I became a behavioral assistant at the CBT center, uh, where we basically worked alongside psychologists and we were given a plan by a lot of these clinicians to say, I have this person that I'm working with. They could really use some help with some exposure therapy. And right. I basically was an exposure therapy cheerleader slash coach uh, that just became really involved in helping come up with these very creative ways of tackling anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I got to really see the impacts of how quickly it could change. So explain to me a little bit about exposure therapy then um what what kind of things you know when i think about exposure therapy i think about somebody who's got a a phobia of balloons and then they're put into a room of balloons Mm -hmm. Um, what kind of stuff how would exposure therapy work yeah it's funny to use that example because exposure was actually traditionally used within the context of phobias so the idea behind exposure is something based on the desensitization or habituation model which is a fancy word of saying keep exposing yourself to the thing that makes you scared. And eventually your body and brain is going to get used to it. Mm -hmm. Exposure also has this other mechanism of change called the disconfirmation model, which is where if we constantly avoid 
certain triggers or things that we fear. Take, for example, if you have a fear of dogs. If we're constantly avoiding it, our body's not only just sensitive to that specific trigger, but it's going to be that much more primed just to take off with a lot of those symptoms that we know. But if you keep avoiding dogs, the only reason you think you're not getting bit or the only reason you think you haven't been hurt by a dog is because you think avoidance is the reason for that. So by also giving yourself a chance to say, interact with the dog, to say, pet that scary looking bully breed over there, you get a chance to see, oh, I could actually have a really nice interaction and positive things come from this, but they actually also won't bite me. Like my anxiety brain made me think that it would. Mm -hmm. And where exposure has really shifted is it really applies not just to phobias, but it applies to all different forms of anxiety, whether it is looking at OCD, uh, social anxiety, generalized anxiety, pretty much the rule of thumb is if you're afraid of it, if you're scared of something, lean into it and face that fear. It's a yeah. cliche that just happened to be very true. So is that the kind of thing that people get, you know, sent home with, with homework to do that? It's not the kind of thing you, you know, you take somebody by the hand and, and physically, you know, go into a crowded space or something like that. Yeah, it really depends. But a lot of the time homework will very much involve a lot of having people do things to gain some of that confidence. Mm -hmm. So if we're introducing, say, a new trigger or something, a feared scenario that they're really, really scared of uh, in a session, mm -hmm. you may do that with them to some degree, where we may even do something called imaginal exposure, which is where you don't actually do it in person, but you write out in really intense detail all the different nitty gritty details of that worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. And through both of those mechanisms, you're basically just repeating over and over and over again until that comfort level starts to increase and the anxiety decreases. And as soon as that happens, you go to that next level up. Yeah. So just slowly get yourself there, which is where that gradual desensitization or that gradual exposure uh, term comes from. Yeah, I could see that working because I, I haven't met many anxiety sufferers who also don't have, you know, a, a fairly vivid imagination that goes along with it. I mean, that's, I've always considered that a ble my blessing and my curse is this brain that kind of picks things apart. And, and, you know, I guess you can call it empathy or whatever it is, but, but putting myself in a situation, um, you know, being afraid to being afraid of getting sick and dying and then, you know, putting, and then all of a sudden li really vividly living my last moments of life and causing myself anxiety. Yeah. So I guess that could, that, that I could see that, that being effective with people who have, you know, sort of overactive minds. Well, you think about where anxiety comes from, right? It, it served a super important function when we lived in a world, I don't know, 50 million years ago where everything on the planet was trying to kill us. Mm -hmm. We of course have that fight or flight response, which we know was our body's way of trying to actively make it more likely to confront or make it more likely to escape. Mm -hmm. But where that worry component, where that imagination piece you're talking about comes from is our brain trying to problem solve and prevent something from happening. So right. we're going to think about all the different ways something can go wrong. We're going to think about all the different ways this thing can go south so we can try and anticipate it and try and do whatever we can to prevent it. Mm -hmm. But we also don't take into account that all those different scenarios are us problem solving things that we can't problem solve. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the big problems with anxiety is trying to, well, I, with me, it's often trying to solve the future, um, mm -hmm. which I, which I haven't been able to do yet. 
I didn't, no way. You know, I, no, yeah, I know. No, I didn't buy Amazon stocks when they were low. Um, no, I couldn't. I couldn't predict the future then. I can't predict the future now. And, and I find um, it's probably above ninety percent of the time that I'm wrong when trying to predict the future. Mm-hmm. You know, that fortune telling piece with CBT is really mm-hmm. a big one. Yeah. And I mean, it's not even about necessarily proving it wrong, but it's also just giving ourselves more of a accurate way of looking at some of those scenarios. Mm-hmm. Because so often when you think about what people get anxious about, they're really just trying to make sure something doesn't happen. They're trying to make sure, get that sense of certainty. And it's always a humbling reminder, even for myself, like, you know, I'm human. I have a lot of these moments myself. We never have certainty in anything mm-hmm. that we do. Mm-hmm we know that we could avoid a certain situation and that thing you're worried about is much less likely to happen. But even when you throw all the bells and whistles and avoidance and safety behaviors at it, does it ever really fully negate the possibility of that thing happening? Yeah. One of the, one of the sort of aha moments, and it was actually something my brother as an observation he made of me um, when I was having some, you know, really bad anxiety. He said that I'm addicted to uncertainty, I'm addicted to certainty. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was pretty accurate. Um, and, and it was interesting looking, turning it and looking at it as an addiction actually kind of helped because essentially I was, you know, let's say I'm, you know, I want certainty about maybe a health situation I'm going through, or I want uncertainty about, or I want certainty about, you know, a social situation I'm going to, I, I would go to every length to kind of find that certainty, which would create anxiety and create some mm-hmm. obsessive thinking and cyclical thinking. And when I started thinking about certainty as as sort of an addiction, it started to help a little bit. Yeah. And the research, that's a really interesting metaphor there because where research points to is quite similar. It doesn't talk so much about a reliance on certainty, but more so about how some folks are almost predisposed or have an intolerance around uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we can safely say no one thrives on uncertainty nobody leans into it it's not a pleasant feeling Mm -hmm. but for some folks it's almost kind of like an allergy where you will do whatever you can to try and just get more of it if that makes sense that totally makes sense Mm -hmm. one of the one of the curiosities i always have when somebody who has experienced mental health issues and it probably happens more often than i know Mm -hmm. um but when they go into that profession helping other people the big thing i always wonder about is you know, how do you separate? How do you compartmentalize dealing with people? Like with me, I, I would have this fear of going in and then somebody telling me what's going on and then me adopting that fear or that anxiety. You know, it, is that ever an issue for you or, or what kind of techniques do you use to separate, you know, yourself um, who, who's prone to anxiety from those, from those other triggers that could potentially happen? Just to clarify, is the question here, how do I make sure or how do I try to not have other people's anxiety triggers impact me? Yeah, me yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's mm. you do it all day. It's your, it's your job. Um, yeah. How, do, do you have to do something or do you just, does that just not happen to you? I want to point out first and foremost, you're used to the word for sure, right? So there's <laughs> yeah. that certainty again. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. The reality <laughs> is we, we never can. We never can get certainty that something that comes up in a session will not impact us. And I would even argue and say that at the end of the day, on the other side of this, you know, therapeutic relationship, we're also human. So we are going to have our own backgrounds and histories, and there might be certain things that we are particularly sensitive to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, that's one thing that I think for a lot of clinicians, they, 
raise a lot of awareness around themselves and what they work with really well. So in my case, I know I get really galvanized in working with fear, but there's certain specific kind of things that I know weigh a little bit heavier on me through whether it's lived experience or whether it's through seeing previous individuals I work with where I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that one's pretty sticky. I don't know if I could objectively work with that one. Right. And I think that's a lifelong process for any therapist that you work with. And mm-hmm. I'm lucky in the sense that I had so much exposure earlier on in my career, whether it's through working with students, working in mental health organizations, you know, ranging from like the downtown east side, students, adults, there's so many things that you get to just kind of experiment with. And mm. there is no way to, to answer your question, but I would say having an awareness of the things that you need to be extra sensitive around or extra kind of buffer uh, right. is, a, is an important piece there. Right. Tell me yeah. a little bit about your, about the Vancouver CBT center. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what do they do there? You know, what's, what's, what's the process there? Um, yeah. I assume you're busier than ever there uh, because everybody <laughs> seems to be. Absolutely. Yeah. The Vancouver CBT Center uh, was founded uh, a number of years ago uh, by three really renowned clinicians. We have uh, Dr. Maureen Whittle, who's really well known for OCD, Dr. Melissa Robichaud, who uh, was very big in uh, revolutionizing or putting GED treatment uh, into more specific protocols. And we also have uh, Dr. Mark Lau, who is very big on mindfulness and brings a lot of that work forward, especially when working with a lot of mood disorders. And I would say the CBT Center uh, has a chapter in Vancouver and we specifically treat from an evidence-based approach. So we have a number of clinicians here, not just obviously them three. I think we have combined ooh, going on 10 or 12. We just added a, a number and we just have folks that really value uh, CBT because we are all based in CBT primarily to some degree or another. Mm-hmm. And we each kind of have our own niches and specializations or things that we work with mm-hmm. and people come to us and we provide them with an opportunity just to work with things that they really need from that CBT lens, plus any adjacent kinds of therapy that they may be interested in. Do you so, engage in uh, group therapy with, with people? Uh, Dr. Lau specifically does a lot of mindfulness groups specifically. Yep. Yeah. So he has a lot of background in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is if you could imagine a marriage between CBT and mindfulness, that's pretty much it. Uh, and he'll often facilitate groups that uh, we actively recruit for, I would say between three or four times a year. Uh, and he runs these and are very successful. And a lot of people have great, great reviews. Yeah, yeah I bet. Incredible work. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, your work with Anxiety Canada mm-hmm. um, as the in-house, I, I, what what does that look like? You know, the in-house, I just picture you being there all the time, just available <laughs> to help the poor staff at Anxiety Canada. <laughs> they're not a poor staff, but they're busy staff at Anxiety Canada. What, what, what does it mean to be an in-house uh, clinical counselor there? Yeah, it, exceptionally busy for sure. I would say, you know, I, I have had Anxiety BC in my periphery formerly when it was still known as Anxiety BC. Um, I followed them for quite some time. So when I got my formal registered clinical counselor title, uh, I was emailed by Judith not long after basically asking whether I would have any interest in being part of the team and contributing from a more clinical lens because they had never had that outside of the uh, committee, the scientific board that they have. 
but I basically one day a week at this point, because when we worked together last year, I was there three days a week. So that has shifted significantly. I am doing a lot of the facilitation of the online mind shift anxiety groups. Mm -hmm. So running these groups for people all over Canada, just using a lot of CBT based tools and strategies to help people with various kinds of anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'm also doing a fair amount of kind of workshops and presentations. We saw at the start of COVID, there were a ton and I mean like a ton of organizations who were just reaching out left, right, and center, yeah. asking for like a lunch and learn, asking for uh, a keynote speaking event, just where you can give people an opportunity to learn about how to manage anxiety specifically, because COVID was really good at making that very forefront in everyone's mind. Yeah. Bit of a silver lining if you can find one in COVID for sure. hundred percent. And then outside of those kind of two roles, the presentation of the workshops and the group facilitation, I'll wear a number of different hats where they're needed. So, you know, we may get sent an article by a neighboring organization where they want to say, hey, Mark, we just want your expertise to look at the information that's on this article about OCD. Can you give it some edits? Or uh, we have this individual who's looking for resources about this. Do you know of any? Mm -hmm. So a lot of kind of peripheral pieces where I'm just constantly giving input, being able to look at it through that very clinical lens of saying, yep, I think this would be helpful. No, I don't think that would be as helpful. Uh, try looking here. Let's merge these pieces here. Lots of opportunities, which is a really, really cool experience. And the MindShift app, it's uh, primarily, I think it's the bulk of it is free. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and which is a, for people listening, it's a, it's a fabulous app. I use it. Um, it's, I think it's probably the most downloaded free uh, mental health app that there is out there. Uh, what can you describe sort of what a group led session would be like? Um, is it, it's online, I, I'm assuming. How does, mm -hmm. how does that work? For sure. Yeah. So uh, MindShift, first and foremost, is an app that anxiety created uh, that is very heavily rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy. So yep. uh, one of our overarching values, as you know, is making sure that whatever resources we are giving out to the public are very heavily based in empirically validated research evidence. We want to make sure that what we're providing works and has a lot of proof that it works. Mm -hmm. So the app, as far as I'm understanding, unless there's some new piece I, I don't know about, it's, it's completely free. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what we're basically doing is we're taking a lot of tools that you would get in say one-on-one -on -one therapy, but we're implementing it into an automated platform. So, yeah. you know, and way that you can track your thoughts, a way that you can challenge those thoughts, identifying some of those cognitive distortions. We have a whole section on belief experiments and being able to do exposure therapy, walking you through all those little bits and bobs. And even very soon, we have a new feature coming in where you can talk to other people who are using the app just to have a sense of community or just to not feel as alone in that anxiety, which is a really cool piece that's coming. But as far as how we use that in the group, so we were doing online anxiety groups before it became a cool thing to do uh, yeah. when COVID hit. Yeah. And basically it's a max of 10 people where everyone gets uh, an assessment done to make sure that they fall within all of the requirements uh, and that we are able to meet the demands or meet the need for what they're looking for. And then every week over the course of nine weeks with one uh, week break in between, we're giving them a little bit of education. We're giving them some pieces uh, to help understand what's happening for them. Mm -hmm. And then we teach them specific tools and how to use them alongside with the app mm -hmm. to manage some of that anxiety that just feels really relentless and 
is getting away or getting in the way of their quality of life. Yeah, I highly recommend um, any kind of group activity you can. I've been in, uh, you know, group before COVID, be live group stuff. Um, and then um, I haven't really done anything. I should sit in on an Anxiety Canada one. I haven't really done anything that's uh, online based, but I would I would really love to try it out because it, it's it it has the same result that I hope this podcast has and that it lets people know that, yeah, they're not alone. And there's a community of people out there from all walks of life that are, that are also challenged by, by anxiety. Yeah. In the clinical world, they call it the group magic, right? Cause although in one-on-one you're getting a lot more customization, you're getting a lot more individual attention in group, you really get to feel like you are part of a community or part of a group of individuals who are going through a very similar experience to some degree or another as Mm -hmm. you, but you also not only get to hear other people's stories, you get to feel really validated and being able to be acknowledged, to be listened to, not just by a person that's paid to do it, by other people who are there to listen, Mm -hmm. to offer their own support. Yeah. Mark, uh, what you do is invaluable uh, and what you do with anxiety is invaluable. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk uh, to me today and to contribute to this podcast. Um, it's, it's really helpful to everybody that listens. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay. We'll talk again soon. Sounds great. Take, Take care. care, Mark. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to our anxiety stories. If you'd like to support this podcast or Anxiety Canada, go to anxietycanada.com.